1: Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, we hear the story of a man known on your style council sleeve notes as Jezar, who's actually Jeremy Murray Wakefield. From a brilliantly random career beginning at Solid Bond Studios in 1984, working on our favourite shop, through his career progression to engineering the confessions of a pop group album, we're going to hear studio secrets of Solid Bond from the original analogue equipment to the transformation through digital, heaps of creativity, trying new things, loads of experimentation, and the creation of those songs that we know and love. There's a wonderfully epic fail as well from Jezar in this one, and something that he says affected the course of his life in many ways. This is another one of those podcast episodes that's like peeling an onion. We just get layer and layer and layer of wonderful stories. Let's get into it. Jeremy Murray Wakefield... Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Now, when I introduce you, uh, Style Council fans might not know you as Jeremy, because always in the credits, it was Jezar. Where did that nickname come from? It actually
2: came from Mick Talbot, actually. He started calling me Jezar, and then I invented a spelling for it. I think the reason I invented a spelling for it was I'd done my first remix They said, what do you want putting on the, on the label? And I just thought, I thought having one name would, would sound more artistic and and credible. And so, uh, I stuck with that, which stayed with me for many years. Um, haven't used it for a long time, you know, like, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. Oh, that's a name I've not heard for a long time.
1: <laughs> well, let's dig into these memories because it's all come flooding back, I-, I imagine, very soon. When was it you first became aware of Paul Weller? When was he a part of your world musically? Was it something that you listened to growing up? Did you like the jam? Was that your world? None whatsoever.
2: Absolutely not. Uh, how, how I came involved was a series of completely random events. I was nobody, just average teenager, random teenager from a random town. And I'd done a couple of weekends of work experience at a studio, and I knew it was something that I wanted to do. So I took a day off work and just walked from one end of Oxford Street to the other, just trying to walk into recording studios and hand in my CV. And it was the last one of the day was Solid Bond. and by... A wonderful coincidence, the big fella who was meant to be guarding the front door had gone to the toilet so I could walk <laughs> straight in. Nobody around. I saw these gold discs on the wall and then I heard this uh, gray-haired chap shouting down the phone at somebody who was Paul's dad, John Weller. I didn't know that at the time. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for a job in a studio. And he said, have you heard of the Style Council? I said, no, which probably worked in my favor. And uh, he said, well, here's my card. Give me a call in, in a couple of weeks. And I called him back and he said, ah, Jerry. He said, Jerry, you always got my name wrong. The whole time I knew him, he never once got my name right, but I didn't mind it. was sort of his way, really. He said, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to speak to you. Um, have you done this sort of thing before? And I said, yes. He said, all right, you start a week Monday. And that was it. That, <laughs> oh, wow. that was the entirety of the job interview. That was the interrogation. <laughs> uh, yeah. Have you done it before? Yeah. All right. You start week Monday. Um. And so I came in on my first day and Peter Wilson, who I know you interviewed on the previous podcast, he was in the control room and he said, hello, I am Peter. Who are you? And I said, Oh, I'm your new assistant. He said, mm, really? Do you know how to line up a tape machine? Don't say yes if you don't know, because I might ask you and then you'd be in trouble. And I said, oh, okay, then no. He goes, good, right. Well, then I'll show you how it's done. And that's something you don't need to do these days with digital machines, but with the analog multitracks, I mean, you're talking about every day over a hundred screwdriver adjustments taking very fine readings uh, in order to calibrate the the machines and there was a, a bunch of other jobs like that 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 gave you know young people a reason to be needed in the studio and so you know I could sit down with people like Peter and the the house engineer Brian Robson and just ask them loads and loads of questions and Pete would give me good advice, like stop asking questions and listen some more to what's going on. And then, you know, in my spare time, I just sort of mess around doing little mixes and so forth. And then uh, occasionally Paul would sort of give me various little projects to do. And then I, I took over recording of the demos. And then when when Brian moved
1: on to something else, I then took over as the as the engineer in, in the studio. So how early on were you involved then? So what, what year would that have been when you kind of entered Solid Bond for that and that, that CV was passed over John's desk? <laughs> 1984. So star Council are flying at that point. So this is Paul's new band. We've got Cafe Blur. We've then got a little bit later our favourite shop. So you were there at Solid Bond while that was being made. Were so you got the guy rigging the tapes at that point then? Yeah, because they were finishing
2: off our favourite shop. But there were a few things that were missing. So, when you put on our favorite shop, the very first thing you hear on the album is me standing at Waterloo Station. It was when digital recording first came out. And so I I was sent down there with a Betamax video recorder over one arm, a digital processor on the other, and two. expensive mics I'd borrowed from the microphone cupboard. And I just sort of stood there for a morning recording sounds in different places. And that was used for the intro. And the the other one on that album was at the start of A Man of Great Promise, the, the church bells. That was my local church. I was still living at home with my parents in Wellin Village. It took us a long time to find a section of the bell ringing that was in time. Paul Paul had his head in his hands. He was shaking his head saying, what, is this like jazz timing or something? He said, this is ridiculous. We can't find anything of use here. And then we just found that little section and it was like, yeah, that's okay. That's a a mixture between precise and having a bit of charm to it. We'll use that part.
1: Nice. You realise now there's going to be a load of campanologists in Welland who are after royalties. You've just just blown that completely. (laughs) Now, you mentioned about kind of wandering the streets of London um, and the West End going in studios at that point, it was a very different setup to how it is today. There were lots of these big studios in the west end of town. Right? To be honest, I was really lucky because the thing about Paul,
2: I think, was that, you know, he knew I was smart, but he also knew that I was quite vulnerable and quite young. I suffered a lot from being a, a, an Aspie teenager back then. So I was quite awkward still. And so he was quite protective towards me, but also, you know, would always listen to any suggestions that I had. Now, to put that in context, at that time, there were people of my age working in other studios who were subjected to situations like n- literally not getting paid and being given a day off to sign on at the job centre. That's how some studios were operating. There were other studios where people were regularly subjected to physical abuse, which seems unimaginable now. But back then it was it was still a bit of a Wild West in terms of how the how the industry was operating. And And I landed with the Weller family because it was a family run business and and they took care of to me. They took care of me. They were, very, they were very sweet to me and very kind.
1: Let's talk through the studios. I don't know that do we have actually done this on the podcast really properly. Like, so, Solid bond. So this is Polydor's own studio that Paul and the family buy, and it has got heritage from people like Dusty Springfield, Thin Lizzy, and so on. Right, so it's a known studio. Yeah, and it's a fascinating building because he'd
2: inherited the lease of that, and it had had some modifications over over the years. For example, the main recording area actually went up two floors. And at the time when he had taken it over, that was all just used as a as sort of like acoustic padding and so forth. But before then, uh, in the days when the record company had their offices upstairs, they actually had a viewing gallery. So poor people like Dusty Springfield that actually have the executives oh, with guests whilst they were recording. Say, oh, there's our latest recording artist, <laughs> as you can see, performing a new single. I hope it'll be a hit. So the height was still there. But there were other quirks like the kitchen, the canteen area was built under the next road and it was always sort of leaking ooze and gunge and stuff and then on a little alleyway through to the next street, there was a basement flat at 16A in Stanhope Place, which was Paul's kind of crash pad if he was working late. At a very nice little, like like a bedsit, but really nicely decked out, where he could um, stay over. And at the other side of the kitchen, there was stalactites and stalagmites and some old tape stores. And I don't know what happened to those tapes. There were eight tracks of Baldunican, old classical recordings. I say there was actually water dripping off the, the ceiling and so forth. Underneath, I think it's 12 Connaught Place, there was what looked like a torture chamber, but was actually what we'd call a reverb room. So it was a tiny tiled prison, if you like, Brett. Right? There, there was no light. The way they used to work is you'd put a loud speaker in there and a couple of microphones before the days of digital reverb. And so you'd feed the sound into there, this this sort of torture chamber place would, would echo, and then you'd play it back through the speakers, and that would be how you'd do it. And one day, we had this really crazy idea, and Paul wanted to try it, which was to take Mick's Leslie cabinet from the Hammond organ and put it in that chamber. To see how it sounded so we got dave little and kenny wheeler and all, all the other guys helped load this massive thing down a very narrow basement staircase and we put it in there and, and set it all up ran a specially made cable all the way back to the studio to where mick was playing and we put it up to the speakers um and it sounded terrible <laughs> it was awful <laughs> so it's like oh well okay all right bring it back up uh, oh, Dave is just giving it his let's say, what <laughs> you're, sorry? you sorry you're having a laugh you? Like, no no just it sounds shit we don't want it just take it up so uh, yeah so it, it would have given us an, an authentic old mono sound but it wasn't really what we were shooting for
1: oh dear and the studio presumably when Paul took over came with all the kids you know this is right before this kind of transition to digital which we'll talk more about with the kind of next couple mm-hmm. of albums which you're really heavily involved in but presumably a load of old stuff came with it though. yeah
2: it was helpful in a sense that, you know, with Polydor being such a big business, there's in accountancy terms, there's a natural write-off of equipment over, over a certain period of time. So therefore, it had all these things that Polydor didn't really want and weren't really seeking a great deal of money for. The only downside was that some of it could be unreliable. The mixing desk in particular, the buttons were starting to become intermittent. You know, I remember sitting there with cleaner spray, pressing buttons in and, in and out for ages. And sometimes you wouldn't know till you were mixing and you'd think, hang on a minute, shouldn't the brass be in? And then you'd sort of tap the desk and the brass would, ah, oh, great. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Finally. So there was a little bit of worry about that. And also you're familiar with the, the of course, with the, the old phenomena of when you play a cassette in a car, the tape gets all chewed up.
1: Mm,
2: yes. We had a, a similar problem with the, with the multitrack. Two inch multi track tape, which, you know, I tell you, when you're editing that, it's like cutting toast. It's this ridiculous size of tape that would start to ride up. On the rubber rollers and you'd be phoning around other studios and they'd say things like, well, it's a stack of four rollers. If you shuffle them around, sometimes that helps and, and doing all this, this kind of thing. Um, so there was a lot of this, this, this legacy equipment. Some of it was great. Some of it was weird. There was a, a room full of strange mechanical devices next to John Weller's office that the polygram engineers had built. Cause remember, we're talking about a time when you couldn't buy studio equipment in shops. Uh, that literally didn't exist. So if you wanted something, you would either have to build it yourself, or you would have to seek out a specialist company to do the same. And next to John's office, there was this thing that looked like a top-loading washing machine, and it had a big aluminium drum that was about uh, about eight inches tall, and somebody had wound. Tape in a spiral and very carefully closed up the gaps. And on a on a rail that went all around the outside, there were different tape heads, and that that was called the Phillips delay wheel. And it was a way of getting repeats and delays in the same way we do digital delays now. But you could do things like you could spin up the wheel and slow down the wheel and all the rest of it. We never got that working, but we did make extensive use, in particular, on our favourite shop and, and cost of loving of the valve. Echo plates that they had there. And and these are enormous crates, several feet long and about five feet high that have a a big, like a submarine door handle on them. And by turning this this submarine door handle, it moved a plate of fiberglass wadding against a big steel sheet that did the the reverb. So you could simulate everything from a large hall down to like a, a small bathroom type of space. And the thing, even though that's mechanical reverb is. Even to this day, people acknowledge that they sound superb. It was one of those devices that just worked. Just a big sheet of metal with a kind of speaker coil at one end and sort of microphone coils bolted to the other. And you excite it. It's like banging a big dinner tray or something. It gives you this wonderful, explosive,
1: very high resolution sound to it, which sounds marvelous. Love it. I mean, the thing is you're kind of inventing things, you know, because you have to, because that technology doesn't exist. Whereas now it seems like we kind of anything and everything we can pretty much do in terms of the world of sound. And when I, when I started my radio career back at the BBC in the early nineties, it would, it was tape, you know, so we were going out interviewing people and you'd be for hours splicing the, you know, with a bit of chalk, you're cutting it with a razor blade, sticking it back together in different places, or whatever. It was really time consuming this kind of work back then, wasn't it? It was. But it did lead to creativity
2: because, in the same way that the synthesizer company Roland has brought back some of its early machines, and it says in the instruction manual, "Please don't try and learn this. You get happy accidents if you just play around with it." You know, and it was the same with, uh, you know, when you were editing with quarter-inch tape. Sometimes you'd accidentally splice a section of tape. You'd put around your neck. You might accidentally put it in backwards, for example. Or you'd, you'd edit the wrong section into a song and, and the producer would say, no, hang on a minute. I like that. I like the way that sounds. Let's keep that. I met David Ball from, from Soft Cell once, and I said, oh, you know, that, the 12-inch of Say Hello, Wave Goodbye, it sounds weird to me. It sounds like you edited the instrumental version and the vocal version, and then got all the bits muddled up and glued them together. And he said, yeah, it's kind of how it happened, actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, let's talk about these two special albums. So here I have, you know, you'll know this well. What do you think of the cover? The Cost of Loving, the Orange album, 35 years old now. Well, it was absolutely a
2: Spinal Tap thing. That at the time when we did it, Paul was saying, "Oh, you know, I I want this to be really classy." And then I think it was about about three years later, he hated it. He said, "What? He said it's so stupid." Because so nobody knows what it is in the record shops, they just flick straight past it. What was I thinking? You know, and maybe now he's flipped back the other way. I, I, I don't know.
1: It was- well, yeah, now it's easy if you're if you're signing a collection, and, you know. And I've gone back to vinyl again. It's very easy to find that album in record shops now. <laughs> oh, there <Yes>. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about this. So this was, I mean, really big album, number two in the UK at the time, and actually, it's I have not realised this so recently. It's the highest charting album from the style council in japan it got to number six in japan and they were huge in japan so it must have sold an absolute shed load but on this one Paul's taking more of a producer role. You're their engineer. And so talk us about those roles and how they're different from those two previous albums. And you've obviously got a promotion, right? Yeah. Actually, when I was in
2: literally changing that role into being the chief engineer, so there'd already been some work done by Brian beforehand. But also, I was a little bit concerned because it was a huge step up for me. So I asked Paul to agree to getting in some additional help from some other people. So Alan Leeming, who was the of mine, who was an engineer from PRT Studios, so it's literally across the the road, the other side of Edgeware Road, which is now Starbucks, actually. Um, <laughs> but back then, it was a, a classic uh, a classic recording studio. He came in in the role of a freelance engineer, t- and he'd he been around for years. You know, he'd he'd done all kinds of music for a very very long time. Just so I could have some confidence and and have a bit just a bit of support if I'd got myself into a difficult situation. Worked out reasonably well. I mean, I remember there was a time where, where Paul got quite frustrated because Alan was sort of giving his his benefit of experience. So Paul would suggest something and Alan would say, oh, no, no, I could tell you that would never work. And Paul would say, can you tell him this is my studio and if I want to do something, I would at least like to try without somebody telling me it can't be done. And the thing was, often we'd try Paul's things and they would work. And then I would have to say, well, that's, uh, that's surprising. Yes, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you learn, yeah you, learn, you learn something new every day. And it's like, oh, thank you. Okay, but I did. So I, I one of the things that I remember uh, very clearly was being left alone with Curtis Mayfield for the mix on Fairy Tales. You know, he was—he uh, would obviously been around a, lot, a long time, and I was just so surprised at how laid back the guy was. He wasn't interested in processing the individual tracks, and uh, one of the biggest lessons that I learned from him is that instead of always reaching for the for the tone controls the equalizer controls on all the tracks it's much more important to, to fundamentally get the musicality of the basic balance right and that that was his thing was just spending time just Getting the levels relatively right. And then he, then he thought, Oh, why don't I do a bit of backing vocals? Was, oh, okay. And then he just w- went in and recorded some ad lib backing vocals, which, which are on the track and came back, we mix those in as well. And he tried out some fader moves. And I said, Um, do you want to play those back? And he said, What, what do you mean? I said, this, this is, it's an automated mixing desk. It's computerized. Or play the fades back. And he was like, Really? That's incredible. (laughs) Uh, It never occurred to me that this was new to to anyone, but it was something he hadn't come across. Yeah, he was a really lovely guy, really laid back. And in fact, I I mean, I can, I can really generalize on that point that with all the people I worked in in that period, the more successful people were, contrary to how it's often portrayed, the more successful people were, actually the more laid back they were in the studio the more confident they were that there would always be a way of, of doing something and, and getting something to work out. Was it tended to be the young people who were just starting out on their musical journey, they'd be the ones who would be panicking over the sound of things and saying, no, I need to try a different microphone. Oh, this, this sounds terrible. We need to do it again and so forth. But sessions run a lot better if everyone's relaxed and chatting freely about the ideas and stuff that's taking
1: place. And presumably at that point, we've, I mean, Paul's obviously made, you know, all the albums with the jam. We've made a couple of style counts albums, all the singles and that kind of thing. So the idea of him and Mick producing this one themselves, um, and taking over that producer role, if you want, there's obviously that confidence, I guess, that he's got where he knows enough to kind of get it done. But also with the album, I guess, yeah, it seems like very clear in terms of the type of album he wants to make. Again, it's another evolution of the sound of the style council. We're not repeating ourselves. We're, we're moving away from some of the jazz influences as a very soul album, for instance. So, so was he clear about that? What he wanted to achieve with that album? It became clear pretty quickly
2: that it was going to be a very. A very different album to to what we've done before, and I think there's there's a lot more sort of personal stuff on on there as well that's built into the the tracks. I, I remember when when we recorded the song Confessions one, two, and three, I was listening to the lyrics and I, I, I couldn't I couldn't really make sense of of what it was about and. Paul explained to me that what what that is really about is how you know all of us that have been in relationships you say things you promise things to to your partner and so forth that you know you really mean them at the time but when you're somebody in the public eye you know and you go through separations and everything else often you get called to account uh, promises you made at that moment and it's such a violating thing to do you know to, to have to stand up and say isn't it true that you once said to this person such and such it's like well yeah but doesn't everyone say that isn't that a, a normal loving thing to say to somebody at the time and you know we we see it now. I mean people got it so much worse now you see about um, uh, Amber Heard and, and Johnny Depp and how they're, all of that stuff is being brought but it's even worse now because they have smartphone video recordings where you're being played back in court. These yeah. very private moments that are completely lacking in context. When they're, when they're put out there. And, th- and that was really what that song was about. It's about having personal moments taken out of context and put into
1: the, you know, into the public domain and how violating that, that actually is. Well, let's talk about the next one then. So Confessions of a Pop Group released June 88. A really special time for you making that album, I understand.
2: Yeah. The, the other transition that was taking place at that point was that we decided to make the move of upgrading the the studio to digital, uh, with digital multi tracks. And that was, no small expense. So those, those machines and we bought two of them were a hundred thousand pounds each. And that was in the days when a hundred thousand pounds was a lot of money. Plus all the ancillary equipment, there was an upgrade to the mixing desk required to make it bigger because we had already changed the mixing desk for a, a more modern one, solid state logic one. And it did allow us to do some things that we, that previously would have been impossible. So if you take the Gardener of Eden, for example, that had started out. Uh, you know, it's a very long track, and it started out originally uh, through a number of demo recordings. And when it came to making the master recording, it became clear that we were somehow losing the feel of the original demo. But the original demo didn't have the last part of the of the track on it because that hadn't actually been worked out but what i was able to do given that we had two digital multitracks was to take the multitrack of the demo and the multitrack of the new recording catch them all so that everything was on the right tracks so the two things matched and then glue them together with something that if you were editing with tape you'd be making zigzags with scissors all, all over the place so we were able to do these really complicated edits other things as well like i think on the the piano piece um the little boy track. The piano chair we had at Solid Bond always squeaked. So if you shifted position during a take, you'd just hear this annoying squeak in the background. And <laughs> with digital recording, I was able to dive in there and individually edit out every single squeak of the piano. That was fantastic to be able to do that sort of thing. I mean, one thing I remember in particular was that, that Paul came in one day, said, oh, Jess, I've got a great idea. I want to do this track with the Swingle Singers. And I had no idea who he meant. So I just sort of gave him this blank look, and he was like, "Oh okay, well right, we well, that he said, "Well, basically it's a a group. and I want to do this track work. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting." So I got out a stereo microphone. The swingle singers came in. I think we double tracked it, so it sounds like there's, there's twice as many of them. But there were no lyrics at this point. It was just the sort of do doop doo doo doop, right. doop background going on and then um Paul came in a couple of days later, sort of waving a sheet said, "Oh, I've got the lyrics, so they're going to sing this song like, okay, fine." So I switched off all the lights and in the studio and just put a spotlight on him and just a little bit of light above the mixing desk. At that moment, I became for the very first time, intensely aware that I was the first person ever to hear this song, right? That this, this is the moment that, you know, and so I hit record and he sung the first take end to end. And he took his headphones off and he said, "All right, um okay, I want to come in and listen to that." And I said, "No, no, you need to do another one." He said, really? I thought that was fine. I said, "No, no, you need to do another one." He said, oh, all right, okay, if you say so." And so he did another one, but actually i I lied. There was nothing wrong with the first take, but I didn't want him to see me crying because I was in tears after the after the first performance, and I didn't want him to walk in when I was in a state, and so I needed him to just do a second take so that I could just clean myself up a bit and get my professional face back on. And <laughs> oh, then when he walked through the door, say, do you know, I think you're right. I think the first take is, is probably <laughs> okay. You know, the, uh, Then we just sort of you know, patched up the odd bits here, here and there. But it was, uh, it was sort of, yeah,
1: extraordinary moment for me. Oh, way. wow, I bet. Goodness me. But the other thing is this introduction, everybody – is, is learning this new technology at the same time? It's not like this mm. is the industry standard. And I love that idea that, you know, here's a young kid just been, you know, able to kind of play around with the equipment and figure it out as a, as a new chief engineer, like you say, where there is no kind of guidebook. There's no kind of, this is how you do it. It has to be done yeah. this way. You're kind of, well, I, I asked John I, because I, I wanted to learn. I said, look,
2: all of this equipment's modular. Would you mind if I took it apart to see how it worked? And he said, Jerry, you can do whatever you like, mate. But if Paul can't record when he wants to I'll break your legs <laughs> I was like, okay I'll bear that in mind and uh, <laughs> and uh, rather rather gingerly took some bits of equipment apart and figured out how they worked and put them back together again <laughs>
1: Brilliant. Well, we'll talk more about that passion because that kind of passion for audio has not gone away in terms of your career and your life. Let's dig into some of these bits of this album. So this is the Style Council's fourth studio album proper. It's their first one in like a year and a half. It's actually, I mean, no, this isn't your fault, but it's their first album to miss the top 10. We should mention this, all right? But the thing is, at the time, it kind of, maybe the critic. I think the Style Council was kind of coming towards its end, all that stuff, right? And the critics were We're talking more about Paul And, you know, the stuff off the back of Red Wedge and all that, and less about the music. But now that album, I mean, so many times there's like, a you know, fan surveys of what's your favourite style count song. This album comes out top very often, I have to say. People love this album. And it is just brilliant. It's remarkable. And when I interviewed Mick Talbot on the podcast, I congratulated him like 35 years later on what an incredible piece of work it is. Because it's one of my, I think it it probably is my favourite. Because it's it's so different. It's so bold. It's so unique. And the... You know, side A, you've got this, the piano paintings, this kind of mix of jazz and classical. And then side B is more pop. It's more funk with the confessions of a pop group. And, and actually, if you're an American listener, it's flipped around entirely. I'm not entirely sure mm. where that is. You might know, but it's really ambitious. It's really experimental, but its it's got some great, great songs on it, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think
2: uh, one of my all-time favorite songs is, is on that album, and that's Changing the Guard. And it has this incredible string part, which I think was was written by a ranger uh, called John Mealing.
0: In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place with LinkedIn. You can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today.
2: What He had done previously was that he had been called in to do the brass arrangement much earlier on the lodgers, the single version of the lodgers. And I remember, and I was you know just starting at the studio around that time. And I remember walking in, and Brian, the sound engineer had the score, the handwritten score of that brass part spread out over the mixing desk. And he said, have you seen this? I said, no, what am I looking at? He said, this is incredible. This is an incredible piece of work, this brass part. You know, So naturally, we, we welcomed him back. To do the do the strings on changing the guard. And it's really masterful the way the way the strings sort of rise up on one side and go down on the other because of the, the instrumentation and the way things have changed over. A, a lot of people might think of that track as perhaps being overly sentimental, but I just loved it. And again but my own experience of that track, that was another, another moment for me where when I was left alone to finish off the mix on that, again, it was one where I was actually in, in tears by the end of the, the mix because I've always felt very strongly when you're mixing a track, you have to feel it. So if you're mixing a dance track, You should have the the irresistible urge to get on your feet and be dancing around the studio. If you don't, then you should probably call somebody else in to do that. (laughs) Similarly, with that that track, base sentimental track, I I wanted, you know, I had had some sad moments in my life. And I wanted in the mix what I was hearing to resonate with the the pain that I had felt mistakes i've made uh, in the past and so that was that was lovely to get the get the opportunity to do that and have that input on that
1: track it must have been great to see the recent i don't know if we're calling it a reunion the band getting back together i'm not sure what it was but at the end of the documentary the end of the star council documentary where there they are and there's the performance of it's a very deep sea and it was stunning i mean yeah. it brought so many tears to you know so many fans honestly. i watched it yeah. on stage recently at the exhibition in Brighton, sat next to Steve White and Mick and I had a a bit of a tear in my eye, I don't mind saying, but what was your memories of of making that track back in the day, the original version? McDonald's. (laughs) If you listen to
2: the middle section of a very deep sea, there is a bubbling sound that pans from left to right. And that is the sound of Paul blowing bubbles into a McDonald's cola that we'd bought just before lunchtime. I think it was an impromptu moment. He just he just happened to have that that next to him on a stand when he was doing the vocal. And then whilst we were recording the vocal, I just 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 saw him pick it up and then just start blowing bubbles into into the McDonald's Coke. And then
1: when we came to mix it, we we panned it from one side to the other. I love moments like this because now everybody's gonna to listen to that song straight after this conversation <laughs> and we'll listen to that song in a completely different way. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Let me talk about the role of an engineer because Paul's tends to stick with engineers for a decent long time, right? So you have mm. people like Vic Coppersmith Heaven from the jam days, then moving into Dave Woolley but Pete Wilson, Max Hayes in the early days of the of the solo career, and then more recently Charles Reese at Black Barn with Paul for a you know for a decent period of time. What's the difference between producer and engineer? What's the role that an engineer has to play? Well I, I would say these days
2: They're completely blurred together. So it might be difficult for people to understand. In fact, the the singer-songwriters that I know of today have a terrible weight on their shoulders because record companies expect them to be the writer, the artist, the person who records themselves and knows that technology inside out, including the programming of all the parts, knows how to mix the entire thing and master the, the final album. Although the record company might, you know, do some tweaks. And the level of knowledge required for that is is immense and and back in the day that that was acknowledged and so these roles were were split up and so the role of the producer is to make sure that the artist's ideas hang together musically and result in a production that is the kind of thing people want to listen to and that it's up to professional standards and that it's got the kind of vibe for where it's shooting at and then the artist of course that you know they they're, they're going to have their own vision for how they want parts that they've done to be communicated. And the engineer's role is to to translate that into into actions pertaining to the technology. When do you lean forward and start adjusting some tone controls? What do you need in order to record something properly? And a lot of those problems haven't gone away. So, for example, recording vocals is a very difficult thing to do because most people are going to have a natural tendency to lean in and lean back from the microphone to a disproportionate degree. So even if they think that they're good at it, they're likely to to overdo it. So the quiet bits when they're close are actually likely to be too loud. And if they sing out loud while leaning back too far, it just disappears into the echo Mm -hmm. of the room. And so what you want to do is have some kind of level control over that. And the really old school way is for the engineer to watch them singing and to move the fader in, in time and to try and judge when they're going to be belting it out and to tell the artist to stay still and they will take care of everything. But now, of course, we, t- we tend to do it electronically. It's quite an involved setup where you have to basically dial into the machine how much you want it to squash the volume levels and at what point and how much does it let it overshoot. Because if you have something like a, a bass guitar, for example, if you over compress it, you lose all of that finger thumping stuff that makes the bass bounce in the first place. So you need to be able to juggle those things around. And then, of course, there's this things like, you know, how do you design on a digital device an echo, a reverb that that sounds like a, Uh, an artistic vision of a space in the artists and producers mind and knowing how to dial that stuff in and it's something that 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 really stayed with me over the years because although although i moved on to other things i think the vast majority of my life what i've been doing since then is focusing on the usability of technology because I, i saw the problem so with paul for example obviously he started doing more and more stuff with the drum machine and he did the drum programming but the admin side of that on the device, I would take care of that. So he'd stand next to the drum machine and say, right, I want to do a part now. Can you give me a two-bar empty loop? And I'd go, right, okay, press the buttons, and that would then be up and running. And he'd say, okay, um, now what I want is I want a version of that with a cowbell which I'm going to put in. And then I want another version that doesn't have the cabasa in it. So I'd have to do, you know, copy pattern twice and put that one into record. Okay. Do your cowbell bit and you do that. And then, you know, so forth on the, on the, on, on the other thing. And then uh, we didn't actually in the machines. Generally we didn't string together the songs within the machines. We just have an individual pattern playback on the tape and when it hit the right part just drop into record for the chorus and then drop out of record back for the verse and we'd assemble it that way because it's as much effort as doing it on the device there's there's no reason to learn how to program some obscure thing i think paul's often painted as being somebody that that dislikes technology and that's not really true he, he loves the, the benefits that the technology brings but just he can't stand the faff. The fighting, the fighting with some box to make it do what the box says it's meant to do in the first place. Right. Mm. And, and and that's, as I say, that's a problem that I've dedicated most of the rest of my life to solving with technology is, is that usability and trying to put yourselves in the shoes of somebody that simply wants to express an idea or whether it's visually or or in in the audio sense, but just being confronted with all of these hurdles, you know, out of memory or disk right protected, the device driver failed. all It's like these mean nothing to people who are actually trying to do a particular task. So, Yeah,
1: that that work gets credited by Paul. And I think this is one lovely thing from, and and it's made my life a lot easier on this podcast, I have to say as well, so thanks Paul. Because all the way through his career, he's always kind of given credit where it's due on sleeve notes on singles albums and all that all the way through every bit of involvement which has been brilliant so there we are sequencing and drum machines operated by Jezar and this is the period where Steve White's doing less with the Style Council or maybe he's left the band he's doing this jazz renegades thing and Steve Sedelnik who's coming up on a podcast very soon has moved stateside although Whitey is on the album he's back to kind of honorary councillor status and I'm not sure how he feels about that but at the front of the album Paul it's D so it's changing but the, that, that album doesn't sound like an 80s drum machine album I guess the production Feels softer in a way to me. Yeah, also with things like fills
2: that came from the drum machine, we wouldn't program those. Paul would just play those live. So we would just literally put some tracks in record and we'd play back through the whole thing, and, and Paul would literally, you know do finger drumming to play in those fills and the symbols and uh and everything else and again it's like you you know you don't have to do something just because the instruction manual says so if 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 all you want to do is to play play some drum parts then just play the drum parts just you know take the simplest route to to success that you can the first mix of that album paul wasn't happy with is that right no no it was interesting it, it was um so that was a epic fail on my part um <laughs> I was, I was very young and I mean, it was, it was a massive learning point actually. And it did actually affected the course of my life in, 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 in many ways. Because what it was, was he said, look, I'm going to let you mix the album. Bring me in and play me the stuff when you've done it. So I mixed, I think it was three or four. Well, what I'd done was I'd listened to what was going on in the charts and I'd sort of researched what other producers were doing, listened to the sound and some of the, the bold steps other people were making. And I, and I built all of that into the, this first two or three mixes. And by the time it reached the third one, Paul was like, stop, stop the tape, stop the tape. There's a very awkward silence. And he said, look, he said, you need to stop trying to copy what other people do. I asked you to mix this because I trusted you, not all those other people. He said, I can see over there on the shelf, you've got all those albums that you went out and bought. I'm not interested in those albums. I'm not interested in those artists. You have to learn what your own stamp is. What is the thing that you do? He said, "You need to find your own way and build on that. Yeah, don't just go following what other people do." All right, And like, oh, "Oh, okay." And so then, as a pair, we sort of mix them collaboratively from from that point onwards, and and that was great. And I think probably my my biggest takeaway from the whole experience was that. Paul actually in life, Paul actually gave me the confidence to be myself. And i would never had that. I had that sort of beaten out of me at school. I was a very shy person. I was socially very, very awkward at that point in, in my life and just thought, oh, I'll just, you know, be quiet and do what I'm told. That really doesn't help you in the long run. You need to, you need to kind of, you know, be proud of who you are and, and you know, make a, try and make a difference and and speak with your own mind
1: and with your own words. And, and that was a massive lesson from that whole experience that trust he has that, this is going to be all right, Leo, you know, I trust you to make this work, is, is mm. remarkable really, isn't it? I mean, Paul yeah. still has his own studio and the world, like we said at the beginning, the world of the studios, you know, has changed so much you know, so much of what we can do, people are making in their bedrooms and all that kind of stuff, but Paul does have Black Barn Studio in Ripley and with the cottages to the side, a bit like the pad that you mentioned there as, uh, earlier on as well Is that a luxury, do you think, or does it feel like that's essential to Weller's world? Well, in a way, we had some missteps, I think, at Solid Bond because the, I think,
2: look Came back years later, the, the reality is that what all Paul really needed was his own recording studio to be the base of what he wanted to do. But at the time, there was all of this external pressure from finances and everything else to make the studio a viable commercial entity in its own right. And so a lot of the upgrades and the things that we were sinking money into were with a view to trying to entice outside clients into hiring the studio. But the reality, as I learned from people many years later, was that people didn't want that. You know, it's a bit like if you rent a holiday cottage... When you go there, you want everything in that, in that cottage to be about you and set up for you. If you go there and actually it's somebody just letting out their own place and it's got their own personal possessions mm-hmm. dotted around the place, you, you're going to feel like you don't belong there and not, it's not set up for you. And that was really the same at uh, Solid Bond as you'd go in there and they might have, you know, mix organ with the Star council logo on. Maybe the would be the drums there on the bass drum. It'd have the Star council and stuff, false gold discs on the wall. And it was it very much felt to people coming in that they were going into somebody else's his environment and not something where they would be be sort of, you know, pride of place. Plus also, uh, Paul wanted to be able to fairly randomly go into the studio when he felt like it and he didn't like it if people were going to say, no, we've got somebody in for three weeks. It's like, well, what, what am I meant to do? You know, I don't want to go somewhere else, but I don't know the engineers and, and don't know the gear. You know, it's it's not a good thing. So it sounds to me that what he's got now is is the, the perfect scenario and probably what we should have been shooting for all along Is something like that rather than investing in this first generation of all this gear with eye-watering prices. And that never stops if you're running a commercial studio. You know, the, that whole area of London now, there's none. All of the studios are shut down. They, they, they just don't exist.
1: Anymore. Now you mentioned this passion for audio and technology that's kind of flowed through your life um, since. It would be lovely to talk about. if so much of, of not just making music, but how we consume music has obviously changed in that time as well. You know, I showed you, you know the, the slab of beautiful vinyl that I've got there for the style council. That's not the norm, although it's coming back now, isn't it? But that's not the norm of how most people listen to music these days with you know little MP3 files and shouting at a um, smart speaker in the corner. For somebody who's kind of in this world and building these things and leading designs on these types of um, Um, pieces of technology. It's a really short time period, really, where it's advanced so much, isn't it? Well, there was a
2: major a major mistake, a technical mistake that was made with, with digital equipment. And that was the, the changing of the metering. In analog equipment, when you've got, you know, the old moving coil meters, those broadly correspond to how loud something sounds. And you just set up the equipment in such a way that it wouldn't distort if something was too loud. But you'd look at the meters and the meters would tell you how loud things were. With digital for good reasons, people became obsessed about, you must never distort because it will sound terrible. So the meters literally, they start at the distortion level, which they call zero, and then work backwards. And it's never clear where you're meant to shoot for. And the manuals will always say you should record as loudly as you possibly can without distorting. Well, that's very ironic considering it was analog gear that had that problem, not digital. Digital has plenty of, of headroom. And so what that led to over the years, um, since we, we, we release those, those CDs, is if you put a modern CD into a CD player and listen to it, it's definitely loud compared to the original Style Council CDs. And this has been what's referred to as the loudness wars, where people are continually compressing the music, compressing all the life out of it in the belief that louder is better. But I, I was overjoyed a few years ago when the European Broadcast Union, um, chap's name, I think his name is uh, Florian headed up an initiative to solve this. And I, I didn't think that would be possible. And they actually solved it through laws, but there is now a, a way of metering audio under the European and American broadcast laws that prevents people from broadcasting things too loudly across a given period of a program. And not only does this mean that you can now artistically get the right balance of volumes across tracks, it also leaves plenty of headroom so that your drums have still got all the impact and everything else. The remaining bit of that puzzle is we're now going to have to change the European laws about the volume level of headphones in mobile devices. Because in order to make these standards work, you have to be able to turn up the volume much louder than it currently is and make the material much quieter to conform to these standards that allows all of the peaks of the the really impactful material through. And that's going to be happening, I guess, so between the next five to 10 years, once there's sufficient industry force driving this, this standard through. But between five and 10 years' time, music is going to sound a lot better and a lot more as originally intended on these devices.
1: Wow. And then does that mean that people are going to have to go back and remaster things for those formats for, you know, for Spotify or for your Amazon Echo speaker and all that kind of stuff again?
2: Well, here's the funny thing. Amazon and Spotify and YouTube are ahead of the game. So in fact, if you upload deeply compressed material to YouTube or, or to Spotify, it will be pulled down. There's no point in, in doing it. And there are a number of places where you can go where you can actually read what the standards are for each of those platforms so that you can, you can record at a level which is close enough. But it'll start to sound great on all of those platforms without the system needing to do anything too much in terms of changing those levels around. And it's so ironic that the move away from CD towards streaming has actually been something that is solving the loudness wars slowly, degree by degree. They're not quite as much as the what the official standard will be in about five to ten years' time, but they're getting there. They're just a, a couple of dBs away from it now. Right.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. I love that. The Weller connection since that album then, because you walked away from Solid Bond after that album um, on some mm. things, but have you had much connection with Paul since? No. I mean, it, it ended as randomly as it began, actually. What happened
2: was that the receptionist at Solid Bond, it turned out, had never filed any of my overtime sheets and <laughs> um, uh, nikki to nikki weller to her credit the moment she found it, she sorted it out straight away but that put me in the rather strange position of being a, a very young guy with a rather large sum of money in my bank account that i didn't know what to do with so like all irresponsible young people i booked myself a holiday on a desert island luxury holiday and i was on this beach and um, Uh, It was in the Seychelles. And I was thinking, this this isn't like British weather. This is digital sunshine. It really felt like really pure sunshine. And there was the sounds of all the wildlife and stuff. And when I came back, I I just felt the magic had gone for me. You know, I was a young person. That was my first time ever to anywhere as exotic as that. And my world had changed. I knew I had to leave. I knew I had to forge a different path. Now, all my family and friends thought I was mad. They were saying, you don't even have another job to go to. You can't just walk away from that when you don't have another job especially something like that you must be crazy but the one person who did get it was was paul's dad john he said, he said, I oh, don't worry, sunshine. He said, I totally get it. You're a young man. He said, a studio is no place for a young person like yourself. He said, oh, I don't know how you do it. Locked away from daylight, day after day after day. That's mad. That's mental. He says, no, you, you go, you do your traveling, meet people. That's how, how you will grow, right? You learn more about the world just through doing that. And he got it. He was, he was absolutely right. I think he understood it better than I did at the time. I just knew that there was this force that was driving me on to do other things. After I'd been away traveling for about a year and a half and stuff, I, I did a couple of sort of half-hearted attempts at some freelance engineering, but I just didn't feel it anymore. I just, you know, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And besides anything else, I didn't want, I didn't want to do that thing of, it's great to work with a well-known, successful people. But if you just work with the one, then your life will will forever be defined in the terms of that person and i wanted to i wanted to escape that i didn't want to be one of those hangers on that used to come to the parties and stuff who I didn't even know who these people were you know but they always come kind of like sniffing around i just i hated all that i hated that side of things and i wanted to escape being defined as being you know Paul Weller's guy who does this. And I did escape because what, you know, what my life is defined in now is being one of the lead designers of the smartphone. I had a huge influence on the, on the early smartphone designs and some of that stuff still lives through today. And what I do now is, um, I work on how those sound technologies are built into mobile devices. So there's all kinds of, you know, when you listen to, when you listen to one of these albums out of the built in speaker of a smartphone, it's not just coming straight through because those speakers by themselves can't deliver that much volume. So there's a huge amount of processing going on. There's all kinds of stuff. There's frequency stuff in order to make it sound like the speakers have a wider range than they do. We bounce lasers off the speaker cones to figure out how how loudly we can drive them before they'll blow up. And the circuitry of the, and the, the software is designed very much to keep within these tight tolerances. And of course, now in terms of, of technology, there's fantastic stuff like Apple spatial audio, which for the first time, because there's head tracking in Apple AirPods, gives people the ability to have the experience of feeling like you're sitting in a studio environment with large speakers, and as you turn your head around, they will stay in their virtual space. So for me, that that plays so much into the the thing that I always wanted to do, which was when I was at Solid Bond, I always wanted one day to have that power of recording technology accessible to me. What I didn't realize, though, was that it would be possible to help bring that into literally into a device that fits in your pocket. And what you can do now on an iPhone exceeds all of those hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of stuff we had back in the day. And I think that, that again, there's a final piece in the puzzle there is when you start talking about the, the speaker virtualization, you could be sat in a Bus shelter in Manchester and be making your mix and switching between the main monitors, the middle monitors, and the small speakers at the front. You know, all of this is possible right now, and all of your effects are there, your, your guitar amp simulators, everything else it 's all just there and you know in the case of garage band you know you don 't even need to buy anything extra. It comes out the box when you when you buy an ipad or an iphone and you 've got this incredible environment. A couple of years ago, I met some um, platinum producer called Henny of the Business who does stuff for Jay-Z and Kendrick Lamar and Black Eyed Peas. He was telling me he does all of his production stuff on iPad. He doesn't use a desktop PC apart from some routine admin tasks. He he just loves working on iOS and using the tools on a mobile platform to put together the literally Grammy award-winning <laughs> record. Releases. And it's it's been fantastic to be part of that journey. And do uh, you know the funny thing that joins it full circle, is that when I first joined the studio, one of my first tasks at lunchtime would be to go out to a sandwich shop called Linda's, and I'd buy the sandwiches for Paul and Nikki and John. Well, the desk where I work from today is directly above Linda's, and I don't mean nearby. The position of my swivel chair is, is to, the, to
1: the foot, <laughs> directly <laughs> above
2: where the serving counter of
1: Linda's once was
2: all those years ago.
1: Oh, wow. I love it. Hey, man, this has been, my goodness me, what an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I have two final questions for you before you go. Mm. Um, You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. What are you going to go with? Oh, um, I would probably say Speak Like a Child because it's such a joyful song. And final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to dig into some of these memories from people who've had connections with Paul, worked with him, or they love his music, whatever it will be. Um, but really, it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, what should I ask him? Oh, um, if there's one thing you could have changed about your life, what would it be? That's deep, man. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I did ask him once, I I, did, I said, I, I need to ask you this, I said, because it's going to hit me sometime sooner or later. What do you do when you achieve your life's ambition? And he thought about it from out he shrugged his shoulders and said, uh, well, just find another one, I guess.
1: Nice. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been great. You're welcome. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Jezar, aka Jeremy Murray Wakefield. So many great stories of the Star Council, Solid Bond, and much, much more. I love all the little bits of advice and stuff from John Weller as well. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Check out more details in the show notes for this podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, if you enjoyed it, please do share this episode on your social media channels and you can get a virtual coffee as well. Just head to the store. You'll find all our merchandise including- including the official Paul Weller Fan Podcast mug. we got sweatshirts for the winter as well, and so much more. Plus, on the virtual coffee roll of honour this week, Steve Perry. Hello to you, sir. Thank you very much indeed. Alex McLaughlin says, love the Foxton episode. Paul, Bruce and Rick sitting down and chatting to you over a cup of tea would be ideal for episode 150. You don't think I've thought of that? It'd be great, wouldn't it? Paula Barrett says, thanks, Dan. Your great work is adding multiple layers of knowledge to interesting subjects. Well, thank you, Paula. That's lovely to hear. Peter Cook, thanks to you. Martin Alaric, hello, sir. Terry Vine. Stephen Way says, don't hear the Paul Weller movement mentioned much. Have a distant memory of seeing him them in Dartford, late 80s, early 90s, pre-Wildwood, but I can't find any internet confirmation. Wilderness years, there weren't many people there. Well, look, it was definitely 90s. Paul Weller movement started tail end of 1990, so it would have been that time. But hey, look, let's open it up to the fans, all right? Stephen Way, thanks for your coffee. If anybody wants to share any memories of Dartford and the Paul Weller movement, then get in touch. Andy Torture, thanks to your virtual coffee, Leapy Lee, says, Hi, Dan, just listened to the Bruce Foxon episode, and you asked him my question about his favourite bass guitar. Great answer from Bruce, too. So the least I could do is buy you a coffee. Love the podcast. Well, thank you, Leapy Lee. Appreciate it. Brian G, hello to you. Steve Perry says, hello, Dan. Just finished listening to the Bruce Foxton episode. Brilliant to hear the great man's stories. Looking forward to the Butterfly Effect's arriving. You should, mate. It's a very special album. The Jam never toured Australia. Really appreciate Bruce and Russell touring over here so we can enjoy the Jam's music live. Mike Steer, thanks to you for your virtual coffee as well. Kevin Smith, thanks to you, mate. We'll appreciate all of that. If you want to buy a virtual coffee, you can support the podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com, and just head to the store. Coming next on the podcast, an absolute legend in Weller circles, working with a man for over 30 years, photographer Lawrence Watson, on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. Make sure you follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.